Welcome to Vet Talk with Dr. Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. For over 20 years, RX Vitamins for Pets has been providing leading edge, condition specific nutraceutical formulas for veterinary professionals around the world. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or you can give them a call at 1 800 792 2222. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Silver, and I'm very excited for the opportunity to talk directly to veterinary professionals and pet owners around the world. Today's show, we're going to be talking to Bill Bookout. Bill Bookout is the president and one of the founders of the National Animal Supplement Council. We're going to talk with Bill to learn how the National Animal Supplement Council has helped to make pet supplements safe in the marketplace. Bill is currently the president, board chairman, and founding member of the National Animal Supplement Council. This is the world's leading trade association that represents manufacturers and suppliers of supplements for dogs, cats, and horses. In addition to his role with the National Animal Supplement Council, Bill was selected to serve on the Health Canada Expert Advisory Committee for Veterinary Natural Health Products. So Bill has some input for pet supplements in all of North America. Bill has been involved with the pet supplement industry and has been its outspoken advocate and ambassador for over 20 years. And over that time, he's almost single-handedly been responsible for the implementation of CGMP standards and compliance with FDA CVM guidelines for U.S. pet supplement manufacturers and suppliers. We're going to go into that much more soon. Bill is also a recognized authority and expert on regulatory issues surrounding animal health and nutritional supplements. And as such, he's testified on behalf of the industry at FDA public meetings. Bill, welcome today to the first in a series of podcast interviews that is being sponsored by RX Vitamins. Thank you for being here. Dr. Silver, I'm honored and humbled by your introduction. I hope I can live up to that. I just want to thank you personally as well as the RX Vitamins team for inviting me to the podcast. Um, as they say or the saying goes, you're known by the company you keep and I'm also proud to say that RX Vitamins is one of the founding members of the National Animal Supplement Council. And when you give me the credit of single-handedly helping shape the foundation of the industry, that that's not quite true. Uh, RX Vitamins, with their commitment to quality, the industry, and the support of the profession has played no small part in the success that we've all collectively established and the making a difference in the lives of literally millions of animals every single day in this country and throughout the world by the products that we offer. So it's an honor and privilege to be here, Dr. Silver. Thank you so much. And uh, I, I just want to also acknowledge the other NASC members and especially the RX Vitamins team. Absolutely. It takes a team. One of the reasons I, I invited Bill today was because I recently did a webinar sponsored by RX Vitamins, hosted by DVM360, about um, nutraceuticals and nutraceuticals for veterinarians to use. And one of the main reasons that I, one of the main things I've heard from veterinarians over the years, because RX Vitamins is a company that um, that manufactures and sells um, nutraceuticals specifically for veterinary use. And as their chief medical officer, I've been responsible for formulating all nearly 40 of their products. But the biggest issue that I hear from veterinarians about animal supplements is there's no regulation, there's no quality control, there's no science. Well, I've, I feel that I've done a very good job of, um, of creating supplements that are supported by 
good scientific studies, if not clinical trials. But it's the NASC who really has been responsible for regulating the quality control and the safety of these products in the marketplace. And that was one of the main reasons I wanted to to, to have Bill today was to follow up as an expert in that field um, with my webinar so that veterinarians can hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. (laughs) So, um, Bill, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what were the circumstances that led you to be involved in the founding of the NASC back around the year 2000? Yeah, good question. And so there's a lot to unpack there. So let me just try to hit the high points and then we'll discuss each one. The, 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 the first uh, question or something that I often hear and, and you reiterated is veterinarians or people in general think this is an unregulated industry, animal supplements. And that's not true. We're actually more strictly, potentially more strictly or rigorously regulated than the human dietary supplement industry. And the reason that I say that <clears throat> is because we're actually regulated at two levels. We're regulated at the federal level by the Food and Drug Administration Center for Veterinary Medicine which is the division of FDA that's responsible for regulating both animal food and animal drugs, and potentially at the state level, depending on the intended use and classification of the product, whether it's an animal uh, uh, food product for nutritional benefit or if it's an animal uh, remedy product for a specific non-nutritional health benefit. I'll give you examples of each of those. For example, a, a nutritional benefit would be a product that would be uh, nutritionally beneficial to all animals, including healthy animals, as a component of a complete and balanced diet, like a vitamin and mineral, an essential fatty acid. If that's the case, then that the law states, and that leads you down one regulatory pathway, which also introduces the state regulator through the typically the Department of Agriculture or some other regulatory agency in the state that's responsible for potentially animal food or animal remedies, All states don't have animal remedy laws. But if you have a product that's for a non-nutritional health benefit, like a joint product or a product to help with the immune system or coenzyme Q10 for cardiovascular health, lutein for eye health, things like that, then those would be nutrients that are are, uh, ingredients that would not provide nutritional benefits to all animals. They would have a targeted benefit, a targeted health benefit, right? So that introduces there, there's really regulation at two levels. And with the introduction of NASC and our self-regulatory programs that we began to develop in 2000, which I'll talk more about in part two of this answer, self-regulation does not mean unregulated. Okay. So we have done a very good job, I think, of representing the majority of the industry, which is about 80% of the brands that are uh, available either in the veterinary channel or any channel in terms of uh, supplement type products for animals. I think we've done a very good job with uh, the members of NASC and working cooperatively and transparently with the regulatory agencies at both the state and federal level of coming up with good manufacturing practice standards, proper labeling claims. So the products are not uh, the customer or the potential client's expectations, as well as the veterinarian's expectations are not improperly established, um, you know, purveying products or representing products that are capable of, you know, curing diseases or preventing diseases. Um, so I think we've done a pretty good job of establishing good manufacturing practice standards, uh, claims guidance, as well as continuous vigilance through adverse event reporting systems 
that are on par or exceed that of any systems of pharmacovigilance in the, in the approved drug industries. So all of those things comprise responsible conduct. So that's a long-winded explanation to a part one answer, which is a short answer. We're actually more strictly regulated than human dietary supplements because we're regulated two levels and also a third level with the self-regulatory program. It's also important for people to understand that the legislation that Congress passed that created the category for human dietary supplements that's been around since October 1994, called the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, does not apply to animals. So the same regulations that apply to human dietary supplements do not apply to animal supplements. And that's public, uh, publicly published in the Federal Register by the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine. So the same pathways that are available on the human side don't apply on the animal side. And so that's the basic, I hope, thumbnail sketch, not too overly complicated of the regulatory situation for uh, animal supplements, if you will. From a does the product, what do we really want to accomplish? So I, you know, every a lot of people call me, and you have to interview and qualify for membership in NASC. And when people call, everybody's got the best product out there, right? And I know when you, as a veterinarian, when you were in practice, somebody comes in and everybody's got the best product, and they're all differentiated. They want to tell you how great their product is, right? I think the right question is, you don't want to look for the best product. You want to look for the for a quality product first. Why do I say that? The reason you want to look for a quality product is because unless you have quality raw materials combined and produced with quality, consistent, repeatable processes, those are known as good manufacturing practice standards in writing, CGMPs, you're not going to have a consistent quality product every single time, which means... What do you really want to have happen as a veterinarian? You want the animal or the client that you want their animal to respond to the product as they anticipate and that you represent and the client to be happy. They'll come back, purchase the product again, look to you for advice on other services, even outside of supplementation, right? And ultimately their animal lives a long, happy, healthy life to the maximum degree possible, right? Right. So I think what we want to, uh, I think what the right question first is, we want to look for quality first. So how do you do that? Right? The buzzword is CGMPs. If you, if somebody comes in and says, well, we follow CGMPs and this happens to me, somebody wants to join NASC and they say, well, we, we follow CGMPs, current good manufacturing practices. The very next question I ask is, what CGMPs do you follow? Because there are good manufacturing practice standards for all kinds of different things, food, point. drugs, nutraceuticals, uh, all kinds of things, right? So usually when I ask, which CGMPs do you follow, the, there's a long pause. They don't know or it's, uh, I have to get, I have to get back to you. So NASC CGMPs, and if you ask, we'll give them to you. Our CGMP requirements for members are are leveraged from 21 CFR Part 111, which are published current good manufacturing standards for human dietary supplements, as well as components required for animal food products under 21 CFR Part 507, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act. Those are published, and you can look them up 
and they include preventive controls and food safety programs so that we don't have, hopefully, or we minimize the possibility of having some other unfortunate event like melamine that happened and affected a lot of animals very negatively and caused deaths on, on, uh, you know, in 2008 and 2009. So written quality control standards are important and one component of responsible conduct, not the only component, but they're one important component. And I think quality is key to producing the same product the same way every single time so that the products that you as the medical director and formulator of RX Vitamins 40 products, you maximize the probability that your formulation, the animals that your customers recommend your products, that they're going to respond as you hope they will, right? That's not guaranteed, but a high percentage of the time. So I hope that's not too complicated of an answer um, to really a a multi-part question. So, uh, I no, that Bill, that was clear. a very thorough answer, and I'm I'm glad we've got it down on tape because there's a lot of details there that I think one needs to look at in a you know in a more de- in a more detailed fashion as far as these statutes that you're quoting. Um, you're listening today to Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. I'm Dr. Robert Silver, and today we're talking to Bill Bookout, the president of the National Animal Supplement Council. So, Bill, um, let me ask you, we're talking about the quality control, but what what assurances do you have as far as the safety of these products that you're helping companies to self-regulate? Are you doing, is there any sort of a reporting system just in case things um, with a given product don't turn out so good with, um, you know, with a customer? Absolutely. So that, that's a very, very good question. So systems of continuous vigilance are extremely important because I came from the human drug and device industry. I was an executive chief operating officer for a $500 million medical device and drug industry on the human side. I, from Wyoming, as, as you pointed out, uh, thank you. I had two dogs with, uh, I had a dog with hip dysplasia, another dog with cancer. I got out of human medicine. I transitioned to, I was CEO for the third largest specialty companion animal referral center for three years. Cancer comes back second time around on my own dog. He's given a very poor prognosis and I work with leading board certified oncologists and orthopedists and all that, but he's given three months, 11 and a half year old Labrador retriever named Lancelot. So I'm looking for help. So I, I find a Rob Silver, I changed his diet, I gave him supplements, and he lives two and a half years good quality of life, which wasn't long enough, but I was thankful for that. So I transitioned, and that's how I really came to, you know, get in the industry and 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 come to NASC. But my my reason for that story is, since I came from the drug and device industry, to answer your question, no system, no matter how rigorously defined, is perfect. Right. If, if it were, we would never have a drug recall. There's always things that happen infrequently, thankfully, but there, there is the potential for something to happen like a melamine issue where a potential harmful, uh, uh, combination is introduced into a food product that has very severe and negative consequences. The same thing can happen on supplements. So we have the most advanced system in the world through our adverse event reporting system, the NASC adverse event reporting system, that we have over 30 billion bytes of data in that system. We track and trend ingredients, uh, over 1,400 ingredients, over 6,500 products real time. 
And if there's something unforeseen that happens, which can come from either a raw material, which can affect a broader scope of the industry, or it can come from a specific process associated with one particular company. So it's an early warning system that can alert us that there may be something that is uh, potentially wrong that we should check into further. So it exceeds the requirements for FDA adverse event reporting, which are serious adverse events. It does not, it does not uh, replace those reporting requirements for companies, but we cast the net very broadly. So even transient events like vomiting or diarrhea are looked at and evaluated to make sure that we assess the frequency, severity, and uh, probability of occurrence and especially any, any negative consequence. So our system is the most advanced system in the world specific to these types of products. It's more advanced than human dietary supplement systems. And you mentioned the expert advisory committee in Health Canada. Health Canada will uh, recognize our ingredient risk reports as a component of considering adding an ingredient to their list of acceptable substances under the Veterinary Natural Health Products Program, which is now incorporated into the Canadian Food and Drugs Act, which is their equivalent in Canada of our Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act here in the U.S. So um, another really valuable benefit of that is, you know, with the one of the current issues, which I'm sure we'll get to, which is hemp and cannabis, cannabis derivative used in pet products. You read my mind. <laughs> I presented data when I testified at FDA on 31 May, uh, a year ago or a little more uh, with data from our adverse event reporting system uh, on the use of, of cannabis and cannabis derivatives on these types of products for dogs, cats, and horses. So it's a very powerful system. It's not a system that demonstrates safety, but it is a system that, that does a very, very good job of monitoring and managing risk essentially real time. And it's a requirement of NASC membership. And so um, the N- each NASC member is voluntarily or, I mean, there's there's no way you can't look over their shoulders. So we have to assume that they're being they're having integrity and um, voluntarily reporting these adverse events. Do you think do you see that as a problem, or do you are their member companies you know very good at doing that? Excellent question, and mm-hmm. it's also a question that FDA asked us. So that's mm-hmm. termed under reporting. Yes. So participation in the adverse event reporting system is not voluntary. NASC members sign a written agreement that they are that they f- are willing to follow our guidelines, and a principal of the company is required to sign a contract that details that. But to help ensure that we don't have the problem of underreporting and that companies are actually reporting adverse events, even non-serious adverse events like vomiting or diarrhea, we do test events. So I will. So we also test products. So let me tell you how that system works. So we test products in the marketplace. We will go out to the marketplace. We will buy a product. We will test for label claim. Now I've got a product from an NASC member company that has a lot number that we actually bought that we've tested for label claim as another component of our quality verification program. But I can then travel to somewhere where I'm not recognizable instead of a uh, an Arizona area code. I could get a Colorado area code or some state that I travel to. I can get a cell phone. And we'll set up test events. So we'll set up a non-serious test event. So we would call, say, RX Vitamins, because we have one of your products that we've evaluated for label claim and tested to, you know, that you meet label claim. I would say, hi, Rob, or your customer service person. My dog got into the container and accidentally ate uh, 20 chews or 20 tablets. Or 
I gave him the product and he vomited. I waited, I gave him to him the next day and he vomited again. What do you think about that? And we would verify that that adverse event is entered into our system correctly from your company. And if that happens, then we send you a letter that says, congratulations, we had this test event. We're deleting it from the system. Your systems work properly. The event was in. You did a great job. If that doesn't happen, then we send you a letter that says, we entered this test event with this animal's name on this date. Here's what happened. It's not recorded in our system, and we require written corrective action and additional training in the company to plug that hole. So everything we do at NASC, I could summarize for you by this philosophy, trust but verify. Well, as as veterinarian for RX Vitamins, um, I've had to look at a few of these adverse event reports and was, in fact, subjected to one of your test um, <laughs> test reports as well. And it was it was it was kind of fun to do that. But I'm, I think it's I think the system is is incredible. I, I really think you've done a good job. I'm so impressed by it. And that was. And that's why I wanted to have you come talk today because um, I I understand how everything works, but you have the details down. Yeah. So let's um let's shift the conversation a little bit and let's talk about that ingredient risk report. Well, actually, and I should amend that to say that these are proprietary. This is proprietary information, and it is the property of the company. No one has access to that information except for the FDA CVM. Correct. FDA does have access to the system and ingredient risk reports are run by request. So you have to be an NASC member contributing data to the system to get Mm -hmm. uh, a specific ingredient risk report. The data does lose its identity and it is collective data throughout the industry. Um, And I'm I'm happy to reference that, but we can Mm -hmm. give ingredient risk reports or assessments by uh, individual company to NASC members by request, yes. It makes so much more sense to position this not as safety but as risk because it really is truly impossible to assess safety across a broad spectrum of possible idiosyncratic reactions. So I think that's really good. And and in my webinar, you did share with me the ingredient risk report for hemp, and I shared that with the veterinary audience because there is a big – as CBD has become so popular in the pet-owning public and and, – and by extension with veterinarians because it has so many valuable properties. Um, this, the issue of safety always comes up and yep. because, and, and is very valid because in a recent study of uh, where they were, where they pulled 29 different products off the shelf that had CBD in them and yep. analyzed them for CBD content, for heavy metals, for all those sorts of things, you know, some of them didn't come up smelling so good. Right. So, so I shared this, this ingredient risk report, during my webinar with the veterinarians. And what I thought was, was, was remarkable about it is if you look at it on a year-by-year basis, because it tracks it from 2010 up until most recently. I think the, the report I had was dated April of t- uh, 2020. And yep. um, you can see how after the, far- the first farm bill was passed, how the numbers doubled. You know, that was back in 2013, right. 2014. And then when the second farm bill passed that took away the Controlled Substance Act from all hemp products in 2018, it, it doubled even more. Now yep. we have, like, I think 68 million and maybe 800,000 um, admi- potential administrations for the numbers yep. of products that you've been able to track yep. and the percentage of <clears throat> adverse events, not serious. Oh, actually, there was no percentage of serious adverse events, but the percentage of non-serious adverse events was, I think, 
less than two per million administrations, which is remarkably small. Yeah. Let me give you an anchor point for okay. why systems of continuous vigilance are so important. When, when you take a, a product through the FDA drug approval process, what do they evaluate? They evaluate safety and efficacy, right? Right. And then FDA doesn't grant approval to market. They grant permission to market. My point is, no matter how rigorously defined a clinical trial is, you can never duplicate what happens when you introduce a product or an article of commerce into the mass market. I would anchor you with Rumadil, right? I happened to be at, at the hospital at that time that was one of the hospitals that was selected to do clinical trials on to evaluate the safety and efficacy of carprofen. So that drug was approved. It was introduced to the marketplace. But what happened after uh, Rumadil was approved? Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, very, very popular, right? And not a bad drug properly used and dispensed by veterinarians at the right time in the animal's life cycle, right? But what happened? Then they found that when that product, that drug was out in the mass marketplace, we had liver complications resulting in death in us, you know, in older dogs. And so then the labeling was changed on that, on that product and veterinarians were advised to do blood tests and, you know, watch for vomiting and other things. The reason that happened, it didn't happen in the initial trials, but it did happen after we got out into the mass market because you can never duplicate the amount of information and data. It would be cost prohibitive to do that. No matter how rigorously the trial, you can never duplicate what happens when an when a, a product is introduced into uh, as an article of commerce, because it just is too significant, right, in terms of usage. So that's the reason the adverse event reporting system and the continuous system of vigilance is so important, because continuous risk management is really, I would suggest, critical and imperative, maybe even more so than having, I mean, there's no substitute. It's not a safety system, but it's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying the importance of doing safety studies, but those are lengthy time consuming. And if anything changes like combinations of ingredients, then, you know, that changes the complexion of the product or the formulation. So I think systems of continuous vigilance are even more important in terms of the data return because it's an early warning system that can bring our attention to something that may be happening in the broader market, in the mass market. So we can evaluate, act on it if as appropriate. That's a very good point. And I would, I'd like to um, amend that to say that during my many years in practice, um, following the introduction of Rimadil, of Carprofen, um, we never had a single problem, you know, with any of our patients on that. Once yep. they, once they um, highlighted the fact that, you know, animals that have some liver issue may be at, at risk, we required a, um, a blood test. We would put them right. on it for two weeks and then we'd test them and see, you know, yep. if there was any elevations. We had pre-tests as well. And, and, and in that context, we were able to use it quite effectively and quite safely over many, many years. Yeah. So, so Bill, I, I want to kind of steer the conversation back to pet CBD again, because sure. I know that you've been sure. very, um, very active in working yep. to um, inform industry of ways that they can best market it in a way that's safe, that's transparent, yep. and that doesn't violate what we believe to be 
um, potential FDA guidelines. Um, could yeah. you speak a little bit to that and what your involvement's sure. been in sure. that regard? Let me give you, an, in anticipation of doing the podcast here, Rob, I, yes. uh, I, I ran a, uh, an ingredient risk report. So I, I ran, I oh. run a report from the system that's, uh, that's a fairly current report. It was run, uh, in, in July. So, and the, and with the additional members of NASC that have joined and are contributing data to the system, now we have 262 adverse events, uh, in, in, uh, through, uh, through July of this year. Mm-hmm. Not serious adverse events, no serious adverse events defined as diagnosis from a veterinarian, you know, incapacitating effect that would not be transient. So a lay person is not, cannot diagnose a serious adverse event. It requires a practitioner to do that. But the interesting thing is we now have 172 million administrations. <laughs> well, doubled. Of pro- yeah, over double. In and three months. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's how, that's how rapidly. So that's both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just give you the totals. Mm-hmm. Totals are for all animals and species that we track, 276 adverse events, not one serious. One mm-hmm. serious adverse event, which we looked at, was not due to the use of the product, but there was... Uh, uh, in 200 and almost 220 million administrations. Crazy. So in my opinion, based on the data that's available, mm-hmm. and I've said this publicly, I do not believe based on the data that at this time, the use of cannabis or cannabis derivatives pose an undue risk to the species that we track, dogs, cats, and horses. We have the most usage in dogs, second in cats, least in horses, but the data is still compelling for the other two species. So I, I'm still of the opinion that that these substances from responsible companies mm-hmm. do not pose undue risk to animals. So let me elaborate on the responsible companies thing. Okay. All right? Mm-hmm. This is kind of like a gold rush now. People want to jump on this CBD or hemp or cannabis bandwagon, and everybody wants a piece of the action, right? So everybody wants to get in the game. The biggest risk that I see or the biggest threat to the industry, in my opinion, is a if we have a product problem with a cannabis-derived product from an irresponsible industry participant, then we are all going to get painted with a broad brush, and that really gives FDA a foundation to take action and really the pendulum to swing very far in the other direction and maybe take an overly aggressive position, limiting products both to, uh, you know, in the OTC channel as well as the professional channels and maybe, maybe overreact. So it's really important, I think, for the practitioner or anyone to evaluate the quality of the products from the company and make sure it's a solid company with a solid track record that's been around for a while with people like yourself that have clinical expertise in this area that can give them good, solid advice, that have CGMPs that have been verified so you know you're getting consistency in the product. So, you know, beware of the opportunistic supplier. And I, and I, I always point out, I, I tell people, you can take two things to the bank. I don't care whether it's a cannabis product or a joint product or any other supplement. Companies that make claims that sound too good to be true probably are. So if you see a company that is selling magic bullets or saying they're going to help with arthritis or cancer or some other chronic disease process, they're irresponsible. They're violating the law. I would not buy from them. 
Um, and the other thing that I would point out is if you see two products that look similar, one of them is significantly less expensive than the other, ask yourself why that is, right? Cheap products are cheap for a reason. So my summary statement is companies that make claims that sound too good to be true probably are, and cheap products are generally cheap for a reason. But let me interject here, Bill. So, I mean, the amount of, of, of risk data that you have on hemp is huge, mm-hmm. and yet and yet it's still not the kind of data that the FDA is looking for, is yeah. it, in order no. for them to, to, to pronounce judgment that this is a safe or low-risk um, ingredient. Absolutely correct. What do they want? Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you. So any regulatory agency, especially FDA, their number one concern is always safety. Yes. Right. And, and how, FDA. Thankfully so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and we work very closely with the agency and I, you know, applaud their philosophies. They're a very science based organization. And so FDA wants to see longer term usage and genuine safety studies double-blind, placebo-controlled safety studies for a longer term, like a six-month study at Mm, least. Right. The longest we have right now is only three months. That's right. So they want Mm. to see six-month studies, and we, NASC, you know, those studies are pretty expensive. So safety and efficacy for clinical studies, if we go out and do, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled safety study with baseline bloods and tracking mm-hmm. animals on populations for and, six months. And fairly large populations as well. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a statistically relevant or significant population where we could draw some reasonable scientific conclusions. Yes. Um, it's expensive, maybe a half a million bucks, and we've gotten quotes on that, okay? So that's a, that's a big bite. That's a high hurdle for any one company to to jump. But if we would take that and we say, okay, maybe we have 100 NASC member companies, and I'm just picking the number to make the math easy. If we got $500,000 divided by 100 companies and everybody's willing to kick in 5000 bucks, then it looks like that's doable. Hmm. So if collectively we can combine our efforts, uh, do a full-on safety study that would be consistent with FDA's expectations, we could really help the industry. So there's a couple of things that would be ramifications on that, right? You mm-hmm. would have people that are free riders, non-NASC members or other companies that are selling CBD or cannabis products that don't help or don't contribute. So there would be people who would gain benefits that, you know, they would eat the bread and don't help bake the bread. That just happens. But for the greater good, I think, and we're really seriously considering this and exploring it, um, for the greater good, I think that, you know, we are serious and we've had conversations with FTA about undertaking this exact action. But I always tell people that's why we hope that people understand what NASC actually does better. And I appreciate the podcast here and the mm-hmm. opportunity to speak to professionals. Yes. Because NASC members, no matter who they are, are contributing to a cause greater than their own individual company's self-interest. Wow. We make the industry better collectively. We engage in activities like this that elevate the standards, pave the way so that the regulators don't have to worry about us as much and they can focus on more important issues. Yet we do that openly and transparently working with the FDA, not in uh, confrontation with FDA or state regulators for that matter. Thank you, Bill. That's that's such a good explanation. So you are listening to Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver, sponsored by Arx Vitamins for Pets. I am 
Dr. Rob Silver, and I'm talking to Bill Bookout. Thank you so much, Bill, Book- Bill for your for your um, contributions today so we can understand more about how pet supplements and vet supplements are, are regulated through the National Animal Supplement Council. One more question about the NASC, then I want to get into some other things that you're doing, which I think are pretty interesting. Um, what does that little seal, the NASC, NASC seal mean when yeah. you see it on a, a bottle of a pet supplement? What, yeah. what goes in to be into that bottle to be able to put the seal on the outside of it? Yeah, another good question. The short answer is uh, that company has to pass a an audit. So you can't just join. There is a qualification process. And for a company to join NASC, their heart has to be in the right place. And they have to agree to abide by our standards. So their heart's in the right place. If you see a company that utilizes the NASC seal, that means they've undergone an NASC direct audit where we check their quality manual, be sure it's in writing, that their processes are under control, what they're doing is what's written down, what's written down is what they're doing, that they have consistency that I talked about previously, that their claims are within the boundaries that have that we've discussed and that we provide, we've discussed with the regulatory agencies and that we provide so the you know, consumers or anyone's expectations are not falsely set or misleading. We check uh, and verify data in the adverse event reporting system. So it's a very thorough and rigorous audit program where we check. It's on site. We have our own auditors that do that. And we issue a report based on their findings. If there are any deficiencies or corrective actions that need to be uh, undertaken or implemented in the company, we give them a report. They implement corrective actions. And once that's done, then they get a certificate that says they're uh, authorized or have permission to use the NASC seal that they've passed our quality audit. So I tell people, if you see a member on our website, anybody that's an NASC member, you, you can be assured their heart's in the right place. If you see a company using the seal, we have verified it. It doesn't mean they're perfect or they could never have an issue, right? Because no system is perfect, as we discussed. But it does mean that they're in compliance with the standards. We've been there. We've done an audit. We've verified all these things. But that is a good way for the consumer, you know, to to at least narrow down the choices in the marketplace in terms of quality control and reduced risk for um, something they might be purchasing for their pet. I think that's – I think what you've done – it really has just transformed the industry. It's it's most amazing. I'd like I'd like to switch the conversation to something that you and I both were involved in outside of the realm of the NASC, and um, that has to do with the the committee that you and I served on um, with the Colorado Department of Agriculture, um, dis- discussing the hemp in animal feed issue. Because currently, as I understand it. Uh, FDA, CVM, and AFCO do not approve hemp, any part of the hemp plant, any part of the cannabis plant for animal feed for any animal. Um, and we served on that committee, and the results of the committee were that there is um, there is a place for hemp and animal feed once we can g- jump through a few hoops regarding safety and regarding 
you know, submitting a feed additive petition or a, um, a, a grass um, certification or something along those lines. Right. So you've been very, very, you've been much more active in that realm than I have and probably still are more involved than I am. Can you discuss a little bit about what the issues are and when we might actually be able to see some hemp ingredients in animal feed, which types of animals, which types of ingredients? Can you share any of that with us, Bill? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. We did serve on the committee sponsored by the Colorado or chartered by the Colorado Department of Agriculture in Hollis Glen. It was at the request of Governor Hickenlooper. Um, so it was an honor to serve with you on that committee as, as well as the other people. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did in that committee was we established a foundation for hemp to proceed forward as being a nutritionally beneficial ingredient possibly as a protein source or a fiber source or an essential fatty acid source from hemp seed oil. Then once we establish that and the report of the committee established that, then the ingredient has to go through an approval process to establish both the safety manufacturing consistent quality, as well as the nutritional benefits. Okay. So that approval you can go through an AFCO process through an AFCO feed ingredient definition. AFCO is the Association of American Feed Control Officials that help facilitate regulatory compliance and consistency in the industry. They, they perform very good and valuable service. You can go through an AFCO ingredient definition process, or you can go through a feed additive petition with FDA. Ultimately, FDA has to buy off on the submission in terms of manufacturing quality and benefits. So it would have to be nutritionally substantiated benefits for the target. So hemp seed oil as a, as a uh, uh, essential fatty acid contributor, that's in process. Uh, when do I think it's going to be approved? I, I expected it to be approved before now. Uh, I've quit giving dates because I just don't know. Uh, you know, mm. I hope it's by, I hope it's this year, first quarter next year, but I just don't know. And I've gone out on a limb a couple different times and given dates and they've always proven to be wrong. So I won't make giving. you, I won't make you commit to a date. <laughs> yeah. Stop giving date, but that's in process and it's pretty far along that will improve hemp seed oil as a omega essential fatty acid contributor for dogs and cats. Nice. Okay? What about horses? Um, it, it, you gotta do, so the, the downside of these ingredient approvals is it's gotta be species specific. Oh. So like a lot of people, you know, call and say, well, this is a grass ingredient generally recognized as safe. I don't want to mm-hmm. get off track. I want to stay on the hemp and CBD okay. thing, but mm-hmm. people will call and say, this is a grass ingredient. Grass for people does not mean grass for animals. Hmm. So there are three, uh, grass uh, notifications into FDA that FDA has said, these, these are okay. Like you can go down to Costco and see hemp seeds, right? Mm-hmm. That's for people, not animals. So it's species specific. Uh-huh. So in answer to your questions on horses, um, there would have to be a separate uh, uh, petition or ingredient definition or a grass pathway or a feed added petition for the specific species. The one in progress for hemp seed oils for dogs and cats. There are some other uh, ingredient approvals that are going through the ingredient definition process for hemp cake, hemp meal as protein and fiber uh, sources for uh, not only the animals that we're talking about, uh, horses, 
as well as uh, production animals. So those are in process through the Hemp Feed Coalition. I'm involved with them uh, as, I, as I think you are as well, Rob. Um, to, to a lesser extent these days, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, those are, there, there are various things in process. What I can't give you is, you know, when's it going to happen? When's it going to be approved? I will comment though, that when you have an ingredient approved for use in animal food, like a bag of dog food, cat food, as a nutritionally beneficial ingredient, it's got to be by species and it's limited to that specific purpose. Right now, hemp, CBD, cannabis, any of those derivatives are not approved for use in, in nutritional products. And that's on the AFCO website in a press release. And anybody can look that up. Two other points that I want to make. In, in my opinion, and I've again said this publicly, and it's based on the data that I see or don't see, I don't think CBD is ever going to be approved as a nutritionally beneficial ingredient. I think it's a beneficial ingredient. I take CBD myself. Um, but I don't take it for a nutritional benefit. I take it for a health benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm 62 years old, and so I don't feel quite as good. I'm, I don't have arthritis, but I, you know, I got aches and pains, age-related, just as a lot of people our age do, or my age at least. So I, I take it for a health benefit, not a nutritional benefit. I don't think CBD will ever be approved as a nutritionally beneficial ingredient. I've just not seen the science behind that intended use so when Mm -hmm. somebody says a benefit it's got to be nutritional Mm -hmm. benefit or a non-nutritional health benefit under the law all right i I think there's some limited data that supports a value in a metabolic sense to cbd and other non-thc cannabinoids for food animals um but there needs to be safety studies because we're concerned yeah. about what's going to happen with these food animals when there's residues for these non-THC cannabinoids yep. in the in the food product to the human population. That's so right. it, it will take some time. But my guess is that they're probably going to be looking at um, maybe creating what we call medicated feeds, where we're actually going to be having CBD as a drug-like component um, in these feeds that may be able to promote um, improved thriftiness, let's say, in beef cattle or or sheep could be um, by definition a medicated feed has to contain an approved drug exactly that's what I'm saying and, and that's so, so it's, it's a long way off yeah. to get that approved for animals but uh, I, I can right. see it I can see it happening it's possible over time yep it's possible yeah it, yeah wouldn't be near term so um so let's let's I'd like to shift the conversation as we're kind of nearing the close of our of our time here and I do thank you for being so 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 great with your time and contributing all this information that we now have on record. Um but I'd like would you I'd like you to take some time talking about your philanthropic efforts and <laughs> the yeah I think it's a, I think it's a really nice heart space and I think it's a good place to close here as far as talking about all the great things that um, the NASC has done, you know, not just in terms of regulating animal supplements, but also in terms of supporting some animal well wellness causes, different types of causes. So, if you'd be happy enough to share that with us, um, I'd love to. I'd love to share that with our listeners. Yeah. So we we have, and I appreciate you asking, and I'll try to do this without my voice cracking because I, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know me, Rob. I I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I, well, you know, I talk about my dogs, or I tend to get emotional because I believe so deeply in. Nothing wrong what, with emotions, especially about do. this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. So 
as, as a component of the NASC meeting, we really have these goals. We, we want to provide information both business-wise as well as scientifically that help the industry. We want to provide a good networking opportunity that brings quality people, quality companies together. But we also feel it's very important to give something back. So if we've been successful um, from the industry, as we all have and we're thankful for, we select a typically a nonprofit. Uh, it's always been a nonprofit but it, it's, a, it's a, a rigorous process of evaluation. We want to be sure that the organization is properly targeted, that all the money or a high percentage of the money goes, you know, towards the good of the animals. So this year we raised over $32,000 for uh, Gabriel's Angels mm-hmm. that uh, has therapeutic canines for um, disadvantaged children. They may have been nice. abused homes or come from disadvantaged homes. We've done Gabriel's Angels twice. That was a surprise to me this year, but um, we raised over $32,000 for uh, Gabriel's Angels. Some other organizations we've done in the past, we did a vested interest in canines. So we we uh, bought, I think, 45 uh, bulletproof or stab-proof vests for police dogs or law enforcement dogs. Great um, And we, we supported uh, the Warrior Dog Foundation, Mm-hmm. which are military dogs that are coming back from, you know, very stressful situations, possibly overseas, mm-hmm. you know, in the Middle East or wherever. So they take these dogs and rather than euthanize them, they either keep the dogs indefinitely through mm-hmm. uh, Mike Ritland's foundation, the Warrior Dog Foundation. We did Heroes and Horses. <clears throat> that's kind of a, uh, one that's near and dear to me because they rescue horses, the wild horses in Wyoming. Uh-huh. They'll rehabilitate horses and also uh, soldiers with PTSD. So um, they rescue horses and, and uh, soldiers. That's real emotional mm-hmm. and close to me because I come from a military family. Mm-hmm. I had uh, my brother had PTSD and very close mm-hmm. to very close to committing suicide. So yeah, that's uh, that's a really um, touches really close to my heart. So those are a few and. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry for the emotion here, Rob. No, Robin. no. It, it's well documented that um, that animals provide so much support for the um, you know for the disabled, for the for the folks with PTSD, um, and you know it's because animals give their love unconditionally, not like Ab- us human beings, and absolutely, and absolutely. and that and that you're able to include this benefit, which has such a wide benefit for so many people out there. Yeah. It's just, you know, my kudos to you and to the organization. Well, it's to all of us, you know, because you're right. Animals love and trust us unconditionally. And that's why I'm so passionate and so committed to the difference that we make in the lives of millions of animals every single day. Through and, uh, the use of members' products like RX Vitamins. Yes, and and you have and you have. I'm, I'm not saying I am singling you out. You know, accept <laughs> it. You've done great work. You know, accept those that praise. You've done a great job, Bill, and and I do so appreciate um, your um, visiting with us today. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say um, at our conclusion to the listening audience? No, as I, I'll, I'll begin full circle. You know, okay. we're known by the we're known by the company we keep. It's an honor and a privilege mm-hmm. to be here. I thank you for the invitation, and uh, also uh, my kudos to yourself and RX Vitamins and the commitment of of you and the entire team 
for the benefit of the industry. So thank you so much. Thank you. The honor is ours. This concludes today's Vet Talk with Dr. Silver Show. I'm Dr. Robert Silver, and I want to thank you for listening and encourage you to join us for future shows by hitting the subscribe button so you won't miss a thing. Our next podcast will be with Dr. Gary Richter, who is uh, an expert in medical cannabis for veterinarians. We'll be discussing that following my webinar sponsored through DVM 360 on pet cannabis that will be broadcast live on October 14th. Until next time, this is Vet Talk with Dr. Rob Silver. Vet Talk with Dr. Silver has been sponsored by RX Vitamins for Pets. You can learn more by visiting rxvitamins.com or give them a call at 1-800-792-2222.